You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. G'day, g'day. Bushy's my name. Greening Apocalypse is the show, and the crew on board tonight is Katie Dundas, Jed McCartney. Hello. No, that's all right. I'm just wondering what you were doing. Mm, it was just don't, don't eat into the mic, mate. Sorry. <laughs> I just, just come up there when, when eating you, his apple, when, yeah, like when, casually. When are you having that baby? Oh, two weeks. Good. As long <laughs> as it is two weeks. Hopefully two weeks. Yeah, hopefully there's a little bit more time left. Indeedy. Let's speak of our show. <laughs> Let us speak of our show while you finish off eating your apple, Bushy. <laughs> so tonight we are very happy to welcome Ross Harding to the show. Um, Ross is a creative sustainability consultant with an academic background in mechanical engineering and finance. Um, he's got a business called Finding Infinity, which provides self-sufficient advice with projects ranging from all sorts of things, small scale to big scale, housing to city blocks, working not only on the technical and financial solutions, but equally the culture required to create the transformation. So welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, and thank you for coming in. Mm. Um, So we'll chat a little bit tonight about the type of projects that you're working on and what's worked and what hasn't, and also things around changing people's mind and getting people to do things a little bit differently and how we might bridge that really big gap between this really big problem and what people can do on their own. But let's start off with you just telling us a little bit about what you do, a bit about your background and what you're working on. Cool. Um, how, how far back should I go? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Adelaide originally. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Adelaide, studied engineering and finance and probably the most... Um, influential moment in my life was going to study in Stockholm um studied sustainable energy engineering in Sweden and that just totally changed my outlook on how these things work um looking at everything in terms of supply and demand and just such a pragmatic way of looking at environmentalism but then um yeah I ended up uh working for a big engineering firm and my first boss was the guy who started the World Green Building Council and Australian Green Building Council. Um, So got involved in really major uh, sort of infrastructure projects and sort of looking at sort of the technical and financial solutions. But after a while, um, we acknowledged that that's only half of the barrier and the other half is uh, that there's actually humans involved in the whole transformation of things. Mm. So... um, Yes, yeah, started to experiment on my own over the years. But, um, yeah, these days trying to combine the two and focusing mainly on energy, water and waste. But 
also throwing a solar-powered techno party at times as well. Nice. <laughs> so when you're looking at the the technical and financial viability of these big infrastructure projects, what did that look like? What did you do? Yeah, um, <clears throat> good question. Well, basically, um, yeah, I, I, like at heart, really, I love maths. So it was sort of um, it was quite mathematical what we were doing, big spreadsheets and um, building three D models, simulating. So probably like the main project to talk to from I was twenty two and I got landed with a city block project in Sydney, and this was eleven buildings on one site. So building a three D model of of those eleven buildings, Jesus. and then at twenty two, and then yeah, yeah, oh, it, was, yeah. It, was, it was pretty. I mean, yeah, it was it was sort of um, a really lucky opportunity and. Um, the developers basically um, knew that if they made the project more sustainable, the city of Sydney would allow them to have a couple more floors on the on the site. Yeah, right. So any environmental technology was going to pay for itself. So it yeah. was our role to basically find the most financially viable way of them getting these initiatives across. For so, the purpose of building more yield. Well, yeah, I guess it was sort of um, the way I looked at it was a compromise and sort of working with the system rather than trying to shut it down and so acknowledging that these guys were trying to make money mm. um, but um, embracing that and trying to work with them to try and make the project as low impact as possible. Um, yeah, so we would basically calculate sort of um, annually what this entire site was going to consume and then look into every kind of technology all over the world. So I spent two years researching sort of every form of technology that was out there um, to try and make the project completely self-sufficient. Mm. And pretty much what happened, like this just opened my mind up to the whole thing, is that we justified a financial argument for it. We demonstrated you could basically get to self-sufficiency from an energy, water and waste point of view mm. with a 10-year payback period. yeah. But it didn't, it you know, it didn't get implemented, and so in in effect, uh, sort of, you know, I've spent the last sort of ten years just experimenting with how to try and make th- these crazy ideas real. In a sense, yeah. so why didn't it get implemented? Well, there's a lot of like blame in different directions. I find so, um, uh, you know, one person saying that the tenant doesn't want it, the the person who's selling the apartment or the renting the office space is saying that you know the tenants don't want it or they're not trying to educate people on what they should want mm. and then you, you know the, there's just I find that everyone is always deflecting things into another direction whereas um, seeing cultures and places where these things do work it's just done mm. <laughs> it's just it's not debated it's you know it's just it's just implemented and it's just you know, I found in, in Scandinavia and Germany, um, people were just building well, you know what I mean? It was just, it wasn't a question of it being innovative or sustainable. It was normalised. Just what? So is there some issue there? Because, I mean, I know there's things that I do day to day which take effort and I'm quite happy to do them, you know, in, in terms of dealing with my waste stream or this or that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of people, if you hear the word, for some people they hear the word environmental action and they just hear chore. So is there... I guess a need to build these things in in such a way that, that you don't know you're doing it. You as the occupier, the tenant, you don't know you're having a benefit. De- definitely. I think actually that's um, uh, the only way it really works. It seems to be the only way it can work for, for, for the vast number of people. There's a lot of people very happy to like bear the load and do the heavy lifting, you know, to 
go the extra mile with you know creating habitat or or dealing with mass waste streams all sorts of stuff like that but i think for the average punter out there uh, at, at least currently uh the idea of having to do that bit extra when they already feel like they're doing so much just to exist mm-hmm. and you know run around and do this and catch up with friends and all the rest like, you kind of need to make any environmental action invisible and automatic somehow don't you yeah well i think um one thing i've realized over the years was just that it doesn't really matter who it is it, most people are pretty much against change like <laughs> pretty, you know if you you know it's people who tend to run away from it and they and you know they they avoid it so um i think when uh, it is but, you know, there's there's sort of the one side which is the human side and I think, you know, to create the culture for people to actually, you know, want to recycle, want to, you know, put their organic waste in the right place, want to mm. choose the right power, want to save water, things like that. Mm. That's a, you know, that's a huge cultural component. But also the, um, you know, the I think places where you see them worked really well, it's it's systematic and yeah. it's it's it's... Thought, thought through from you know from the top down as well as the bottom up. Yeah. So, so what's the cultural difference? Because you know the Scandinavian culture, if mm-hmm. you like, allows them to build cities where you know they've got no cars in the cities and they've got more bikes than people and all this sort of stuff. And massively different and more challenging climate as well in yeah. terms of weather. Yeah. And and the sustainable buildings and what have you. What's their mindset compared to ours? Well. Yeah, why, um, why are we still? Well, it was interesting for me. I mean, I guess when when I started working in Sydney, um, uh, there were a lot of people moving to, from different places around the world to come work in this office that we were working in, and um, they were a little bit just disappointed when they arrived because Australia had this hype of being an extremely sustainable place, and mm. sort of, and I think Australians are very connected with nature. Um, but in terms of sort of implementing solutions, I found that it was a, a bit more talk than it was action. Um, and I think that part of that particularly, I mean, in, in relation to the building side of things, um, is that I don't know that it is cultural in a sense, but more regulated, you know. So it's sort of, um, uh, the, you know, the building codes in, in Scandinavia and, and in Germany, you know, they're just, they just they regulate it to a point that it is... Um, the minimum energy um, demand that you're allowed to get across is is strong, whereas here it's you know it's pretty weak still. Mm. And um, I think that you know you don't like I don't know why we give people the choice to be honest. But like if the developers are the ones that are making lots of money out of it, they should really be building good quality products for future generations. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Dad's like oh, watching all these buildings go up and thinking, how does that happen? Um, yeah, on that no, decision making. I was going to uh, quote that developer, but I'll, I'll <laughs> um, <laughs> When you think about that city block and why uh-huh. things, when you proved that it was possible and you proved it was financially okay, when you think about the decision making process from actually appointing you to do that to getting to the point of the build, where does where does the decision making go wrong, and at what point should regulation kick in? So we've got building code and we've got the planning scheme um, and we can use those tools. I think that, um, uh, I don't, yeah, per- personally, as the environmental consultant in a project, it, like uh, you get pretty tired of, I, I'm the kind of person who works really hard up front 
And it's like you get kind of tired of basically going above and beyond as much as you possibly can to just follow these things up front. And they're always the initiatives that are considered the first ones to rip out of the project. Ah. And, and so it's not like... And so for me, you know, part of the... Um, reason for being interested in more the creative side of things is that when sustainability is at the core of a project, it's part of the brand, it's part of the entire project, you can't rip that out. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so it's, it's it, for me, it's more that when, you know, it, it's not just sustainability, it's other things too, but when things can be taken out, they will. Mm-hmm. And so in, in my mind, um, the projects over the years that I've seen that have sort of um, worked much better... Uh, when it's you know there, there's there's no way of sort of um, excusing it or removing it. It's just it is the core of it and it's integrated into it and it's it's entirely part of it. What's the biggest failure you've had? Um, <laughs> there's, there's a fair few. Probably the dumbest thing I ever did was lose it at the architects at that meeting. <laughs> One of the first meetings um, with these. Um, yeah, with Fosters and Partners, I just sort of completely... I was so young and enthusiastic that I actually just got up and lost it at them because I was so surprised. But um, Great diplomacy then. I think, personally, I think everything I've done, I've failed in, to be honest, and I think that's kind of part of why you guys invited me in here was that I'm a great failure. But um, it was... It's, it's, we we it, like the battler. Come on, <laughs> tell us the battler story. In, in all honesty, like, I... Um, for me, every project that I've worked on, I've like we've always pushed for a hundred percent, and um, I really have very few examples to show of where that's actually you know um, uh, been delivered, mm. and you know, and it's it's sort of I'm only one piece of the pie there, and yeah. it's sort of like. I don't know, I just, you know, I, sometimes I just go to meetings these days and if everyone in the room is getting negative about the environmental initiatives, I just sort of turn to them and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up. You know, like it's, I'm, you know, look, I'll go to the nth degree, but if you guys are not all behind this, mm. it's not going to happen. And so to me, yeah, it's sort of, um, I feel like it's, yeah, it, well, which one was the biggest failure? I don't know. But I guess the earlier ones were, you know, and it's like I, I think it's learning over the years that um, things like the emotional side and the cultural side have um, made it more effective. And so, like, to give you an example, we've been working with a ski resort in Switzerland for um, about the last five years and um, they they had already done a huge number of sustainability initiatives. Mm. Um, you know, they had basically 10 small-scale hydroelectric power plants spread over the mountain. Um, they're basically... Um, they introduced a recycling policy in the mountain um, to, and then that ended up influencing the rest of the village. There are all these, like, great things that they started to do, but they weren't telling anyone. So they're arguably one of the most sustainable ski resorts in the world, but they mm. just weren't telling, telling anybody. So when we first got involved with them, we said to them, hey, you need to transparently communicate all the great things you're doing so people learn about that. And then from there, basically, what happened is that, you know, their sustainability guy almost became their PR guy and they ended up talking about it more and more in a positive way, in a transparent way, not in a greenwashing way. Yeah. And and to me, the, that sort of connection between the communications and, and the more... Um, we've made films with them and um, like did a number of different more like uh, creative stunts with them 
And the combination of a, a technical financial strategy that we did with them linked with the more comm side mm. has meant that those guys are just doing it for themselves. Do yeah. you know what I mean? They don't, it's not like I need to be sitting there writing reports for them to do it. Yeah, so there's something about storytelling and narrative, which is a big part of your website. You've got lots of people's stories on there. True. So thinking about stories and thinking about change beyond the building scale, what's, and and thinking about changing the city as a system, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or yeah, beyond a precinct scale, do you have a vision for the future of what a city would look like? And do you have a story that you tell and repeat that story to get people across the line. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, since I yeah, since working on that city block when I was twenty two, I just felt like I understood how cities work from an energy water waste point of view inside out, and understood how they could work. Um, yeah, I mean, looking at city of Melbourne, it's like it, the it, there's like within ten years you could make the whole thing self sufficient. You could have it powered entirely by renewables, um, completely zero waste and completely water neutral. And it's like it's, you know, that that to me is totally possible. I'm Joel Salison, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. And we are talking to Ross Harding this evening about trying to implement sustainability initiatives in buildings and all of the barriers that that leads to. And we're going to talk about... We moved on from talking about buildings to talking about cities. And, Ross, you were about to tell us how cities work at the moment. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, it was going to get ugly, I think. It was, yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll try and keep it brief, but we do have some of the dirtiest power in, in the world in Victoria. Um, so that's generally digging a, a lot of brown coal out of the ground and running power plants and using that to power the city. We fill up dams sort of like, you know, five hours away from the city, pipe that water into the city um, and then consume, a, you know, 100% of the water gets consumed and then sent out to the sewer, which is the treatment plants are both an hour in either direction. Um, so the... Um, and and then the waste is basically a whole bunch of products coming in and basically like you know almost all of it going to landfill none of the organic waste is treated on site or anything so mm-hmm. the other way of doing it's power it by renewables the the water that's consumed in cities about 95% of it's actually grey water so it's only about 5% of it actually needs to go that that distance to the sewage treatment plant and that could be the other 95% could be circulated infinitely and then, um, yeah, about 50% of the waste in the cities is uh, organic waste, somewhere between 30 and 50% of the waste in the cities is organic waste. So it doesn't need to be driven away in trucks, but could be treated and turned into fertiliser and even energy generated from it and reused in the city. Mm. So, so when you say you can um, recirculate your um, grey water, yeah, uh, how do you do that? Like, is it massive amounts of new plumbing or is it simple? Yeah, it's a good a good point. I mean, there's there's a number of developments doing it at the moment. So, um, Barangaroo and Sydney, um, also um, Central Park, Sydney, they're they're doing it. I'm not sure if there are many of these black water treatment plants in Melbourne at the moment, but 
Basically, it's only 1% of all the water in Melbourne that's actually currently treated and reused, which is pretty amazing. Um, so, uh, so uh, even no, in general, like just the stuff that gets sent to the water treatment plants, only 1% of it's actually treated and reused. So um, basically the... Um, uh, well, part of it's regulation. So, you know, like it's actually not that easy in buildings at the moment to just get people to be able to put rainwater into showers yeah. or to, you know, even toilets. A lot of hydraulic engineers will have issues with, um, you know, not even talking about just using rainwater for things like drinking water. Um, so to start with, just, just collecting water and using that for normal um, uses. The other thing is that as soon as you – what we do is we mix – um, you know, black water, so, you know, feces with water, and we mix that 5% of water with the other 95 and we make it all septic. Yeah. And then we have to try and treat all of them. So the the best way that you could do it is just split up the black water. Um, and that does depend on a building-by-building building basis how you actually do it. Um, but to split up the black water, make that separate, and then and then every all the other water sources could be just treated it's a grey water treatment plant treated and reused now what sort of um what the challenge with that is is that a lot of this stuff is hidden away and no one's really aware of it and it's kind of hidden Mm. and um we need places to be able to do this so a you're right there's a there's a sort of a big challenge in retrofitting buildings to actually allow for this stuff but um, you could pipe buildings entirely with grey water instead of piping them with drinking water, if you know what I mean, mm. and then and then work out the drinking water, which is a small portion, 5% on top of that. Um, but, you know, the, the bigger challenge is how to actually, where would you put these water treatment plants and how could we make them visible and connect humans with them in some way? Mm. And not just water treatment plants, but how could you make all those city systems visible and interesting? Exactly. And actually get people to engage with process yeah. rather than hiding it all the way and pretending that you don't have an impact. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so, yeah, there's sort of exactly, I feel exactly the same way that the waste side of things. Waste is something that's hidden away and, and we, you know, shy away from. But um, uh, it's, you know, it's only the organic waste that makes things smell and, and is so unattractive to people. The rest of the stuff is... Well, so unattractive in the short term and so fabulous in the long term. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And do you have any examples of where things have been working or things you've been testing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, actually, it's only relatively recently in the last couple of years that we started working more in depth with waste. Um, So normally we've been doing energy and water projects, but recently, um, about two years ago, we got contacted by a hotel in Queenstown. And um, just over a beer, over lunch, we had a bit of a laugh and said, why don't we just run the bar there, zero waste? And the the owner and the bar, uh, the guy running the bar kind of had a laugh at me and said, yeah, yeah, sure, Ross, whatever. And I challenged them to go through the bins with them. So we got in has suits, poured the, the skips out and went through the bins together and basically dry reached for about half an hour. Yeah. But by the oh. end of it, we had a tile where we could see exactly where all the waste was and, and we knew exactly what was going on. And for me, in, as opposed to writing a report and telling them theoretically how they should do it, by being hands-on with them and actually doing that process, I, I went away and came back three months later and the bar manager had had transformed the bar to become zero waste. And now they're actively doing the same thing in the restaurant. 
and in the rest of the hotels. So off the back of that, mm. um, the uh, um, Monash University actually contacted us and asked us to help them out on their zero waste strategy. So we're just working through that at the moment. But it's roughly about 50% of their waste is organic waste. Yep. Does that and start again with a beer and a tarp and spreading all the <laughs> shit on the lawn? Or? It, that one, that one started with a um, an espresso Pellegrini's actually. Yeah, <laughs> something over drinks. <laughs> yeah. So how's that? How does that? Because that's an interesting place to if you can start to get these displays of action happening in a university, and especially something like Monash University. I mean, a lot of universities in Victoria anyway that have people coming in and out from all over the world all of the time for a number of years, and so. It's not just that you're doing it there on site. You're potentially exporting those notions back to other countries. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a nice sort of positive viral kind of method, yeah? Exactly. So, yeah, there's sort of the way they're talking about um, this whole approach is, you know, circu- the circular economy, mm. um, which is a really exciting way of looking at things. And I guess for them it's 6,000 staff that they've got that, you know, could make the operation of the university um, circular. Um, and zero waste, but the what's even more exciting for them is the the linear process of students going through that university, sixty thousand students going through every year, mm. and taking that away with them. And so their philosophy towards trying to they're doing a lot of work with energy, and now they're starting to do some work with waste. And it's it's they're looking at how they can not just sort their own university out or be an example for other universities, but they're interested in showing, um, you know, being an example for cities, helping... Because I think that you look at a city, it's it's impossible right now to conceptualise the idea of a city being zero waste, but the you, you do it at a university just nearby and it's, you know, it's not so far-fetched anymore. And 60,000 people on campus, you know, it's, it's a town. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 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 It's a big town. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of ideas are you thinking about what... The, interesting things will we see the well the one thing that's really rare in australia still is just anaerobic digestion of food waste so it's sort of um it's quite cost effective um to basically take food waste start from oxygen warm it up turn and you basically get two byproducts biogas and fertilizer um so that's definitely actually we're like we're really just one month into the the process, but that's something that's on on the table. Whether how do you warm it up after our show on energy return on energy, energy invested? return on energy? I keep invested. thinking, is this a good thing? Do you get more back than you put in? Ah, do, you're saying is it a good oh, in yeah. terms of energy use? Yeah, yeah. So oh, as in yeah, well. What do you mean? Energy use in terms of... Uh, is, is, is there in any um, energy inputs into creating this antibody- uh, ah, yes. yeah, anaerobic? Yeah. Yeah. Or are we actually getting... You're getting a net energy benefit back? Yes. No, no, definitely. So the, I, I'm not a big fan of the um, dehydrators. The dehydrators do suck energy. Yeah. But the... Um, no, these ones are generating quite a lot. We're mm. getting sort of... The, the numbers that we're running, we're getting about somewhere between a two- and five-year payback period on, yep. on the project. And, so, that's not, and that's not accounting for the fertiliser. That's just from the energy that's been produced. Similar to... Uh, to Sam. Sam Sam's uh, backyard... Uh, biogas generator that That's he right. clicks well, off because we had a, we had a guest Sam Alexander mm. on a few months ago who has been experimenting with a, a commercially available backyard biogas generator and all of the food waste from his house is now able to create enough gas each day to cook the food for his house. Right. So much so, but I think he was saying he's now importing food waste from the neighbours to get a <laughs> bit of extra cook 
So, but if you're thinking about a 60,000 student... If he's student, got a birthday party, he's got to go... Yeah, you've got to do the whole streets waste. But, if you, but the, the, the options there, if you can start to make these a fairly normal, normal thing, you know, where the input is food waste and organic waste, the output is gas for heating or cooking yeah. and fertiliser. Is um, a fertiliser compost? What? Yeah. Well, it, it, um, in Sam's case, it was um, more liquid. Yeah. Liquid fertiliser, yeah. Liquid so, and, and a bit of... Um, yeah. Bit of solid. We, we've just built one in my backyard, actually, but yep. I haven't got a, any gas out of it yet. We haven't actually filled it up with bacteria, but the the idea is it's basically a 44-gallon drum that mm. we've put three pipes in, into it. You, um, we, you need to sort of... Um, uh, mulch up the food waste to put it in beforehand. So we're yep. just trying. I'm trying to find an incinerator at the moment. If anyone's got one, wants nice. to call in. <laughs> I might have to call. I'll call the 1980s. They'll have one. Yeah, exactly. What is that? So it's like it's you put it in a sink and just you know. Oh, um, those things that mash up. Yeah. So, so that's what oh. we want to do. We're trying to get all the details right, but we've got we've basically got a um, a, a bag that we bought that fills up with gas. Yep. But in effect, you fill up the um, 44 gallon drum with water, mm-hmm. and we actually are going down to the Abbotsford Convent um, to get their um, cow manure. Ah, that's how we get it started. Start it, yep. With the cow manure. And then um, basically it'll take about three kgs of food waste a day and we'll get about three hours of gas to run a barbecue on it each day. Awesome. Mm. So, but yeah, I mean, there's, and so you don't actually, that one, we won't be warming it. We've just put it in a location where it gets a bit of sun. So awesome. scaling that up to the size of Monash, you'd have some decent power. There's, yeah, well, I met with Sustainability Victoria the other day and they um, told me about a, a guy who's actually got one. Uh, they're building them out, I think it's in Ballarat. But, um, yeah, we're, we're actually considering trying to um, power our festival at the end of the year on this technology there's as well. Some, so. There's some nifty tinkerers out there in mm. Ballarat. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about thinking differently about how waste might be managed and how you might be able to turn waste into energy and fertiliser. And excitingly, that might happen at Monash University. Um, I thought we could have a little chat about energy in this next section. And I wanted to ask you a question. Um, I, think, I don't know where I found this. Maybe it was on your website. Ross Harding, founder of Finding Infinity, is helping build a future based upon infinite resources. So I imagine that's about renewable energy. Now, we often talk on this show about... What would happen if we had infinite resources when humans have <laughs> done such a lot of damage with um, bathing in the glow of fossil fuels and all of that energy it's provided us with? What do you think would be the consequences of us continuing to have infinite access to energy? Um, I think we currently do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just we like the, I mean, look, okay. A very, course, very if, high density, if, very, very portable, um, storable, current, current, our current energy paradigm of fossil fuels is, in, is this incredible blip on a timeline in that it's just, what is it? Is it like a barrel of oil is like eight and a half years of human labour in it yeah. or something like that in terms of stored energy? Yeah, which I don't think we can necessarily promise from renewables. So it's the, a, we do have to rethink. But you, it, there's oh, well, plenty of energy. Well, the um, so basically we've got um, uh, about forty years of oil left 
about 65 years of gas, about 85 years of uranium left and about 130 years of coal. So in less than two lifetimes, the entire that's like 80% of the entire global energy system is based on those resources. In mm. 130 years, that's entirely gone. Yeah. So it's like basically we do have infinite energy. In, relatively to our life and the life of the planet, the sun is virtually an infinite resource. And mm. apart from... You know, every form of energy that is um, uh, comes from that is on Earth, except for geothermal, comes from the core of the Earth, and um, tidal comes from the Moon. But basically, other than that, wind, solar, mm. biomass, wave, um, hydroelectricity, everything is solar energy, basically. Mm. So we do currently have um, infinite energy coming to us it's just a matter of whether or not we harness it and transform that into something that we can use for electricity or heat or the things that we need um so i mean in effect we were like two 200 years we've only had electricity for 200 years true so before then we were living on infinite energy Mm. and so for me the consequences of us living on infinite energy are pretty great really but a different kind of life. And sort of six and a half billion less of us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. And I think that I personally feel like we, what other choice do we have but to be optimistic about the future and to try and um, do what we can to change what we can within our own sort of ability. But um, to me, there's definitely a lot of barriers into where we're going, but... Um, if you look at it, we 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 have no choice but to um, to transform into 100% renewable energy in 130 years. And my view is, when you look at the numbers, when you look at the financial viability of it, the question is, why would you put off that investment to 130 years and risk the huge environmental degradation when we can invest in it now and make it happen fast? I am pleased to hear optimism. I mean, so I I swing back and forth. Just to put my cousin, I'll swing back and forth between such massive optimism and such sheer nihilism, and it can go like that. But it's also, when I look at the future, I sort of have that same thing where I grew up through the 80s and, you know, watched the Jetsons and all. So I still have sort of one foot that drags along in that complete techno-utopian mindset where, and I'm really fascinated and deeply curious about science and the idea that technologies can advance. But then I also have this kind of... uh, darkness about it too and i wonder about just stripping everything back so it's it's a really weird tightrope to balance on um i don't know even why i threw that in i think we're just chatting into microphones aren't we but (laughs) but i I think i think that's i think they're both part of it i think that like we if you come back to that's how i was taught in sweden was Mm -hmm. look at it supply and demand Mm -hmm. and it's like our supply our approach towards supply is neanderthalic and Mm. it needs to change but we can't continue to demand the same amount that we're demanding and we need to minimise our demand at the same time. Yeah. So it's like, you know, if you talk about it in terms of energy, it needs to be 100% renewable energy, but we need energy efficiency. Like we just, mm. you know, you have to do both at once. Yeah. It's not like we should just move on to infinite resources and just just increase our demand. Because we, we, we can't. It physically can't. It doesn't make sense mm. in any sense. We spoke out in the green room before. One of your backgrounds is in finance, and um, this is something that a lot of people rarely bring to the environmental movement or, or, the, or the discussion. But you, uh, you work a lot with people to look at the financial return and viability of projects. 
Yep. Just tell us a bit about that because I think that's a thing that really does go missing a lot. So, yeah, it's basically, I mean, to look at it simply, um, we work on anything from a house to a hotel to apartment buildings to mm. sort of, you know, universities, whatever. And the thing is... Um, almost every time we could justify it, a project being self-sufficient, 100% renewable energy, water neutral and zero waste with a 10-year payback period or less. Mm. It's, not, it's not the technology or the finance that's the barrier. Um, and, you know, usually the, the, the projects that are more complicated is when things are not aligned. So if a developer's building something and wants to, you know, build as poorly as possible and sell it off to someone as expensive as possible... Mm then it's very hard to justify, whereas we actually do a fair bit of work for hotels, funny enough, mm. and that's because they care about their operational costs. Yeah. So, like, we have a project in New Zealand at the moment, which is this amazing self-sufficient hotel built from... Um, uh, it's just about to start construction, but it's basically um, built entirely from wood and, and rammed earth, but it's, like, a beautiful luxury hotel. Yeah, right. Um, but diverse. It's not, like, exclusive, but um, powered by solar... Um, lakes for storage, um, zero waste, water neutral, and it has to be part of that stuff. It has to be for the site. Mm. Um, but the, the the developer's brief to us was he said, I, "I want you to help me have zero operational costs." And he, you know, this guy—he's a lovely mm. guy. His kids go to the green school in Bali. He's like, yeah. you know, he's a very forward-thinking, amazing guy. But he has that sensitivity between he's into beautiful design sustainability and finance equally and, and he's and got a long-term interest and and exactly it's exactly which developers don't <laughs> yeah. generally have but this this is a thing that is often missing in discussions about environmentalism and, envi- and and positive environmental outcomes is that the financial aspect has to be faced up to and i think often unfortunately we get very ideal very ideologically driven and we mm-hmm. should but we also forget that there's a bunch of other things that feed into these projects and processes. Yep. And, and so my view on that is that um, uh, if you can prove... Uh, so I'm personally a passionate environmentalist, mm. but I try and hit it in a really pragmatic way. Yep. And it's like having the, techno- having the technical and the financial backing to solutions, it, it, it becomes a flawless argument. You know, if you can show someone that, that it just makes sense in all directions, mm. then how can everyone say no to that? Well, this 10-year payback is niggling at me, though. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do, you, how do you keep them there for 10 years? Who? Whoever's so, making it, the investment. It de- yeah, well, that's the thing. It depends. So to me, for example, like we've, we've done the study on um, apartment buildings. And it's like, yeah, so how do you justify that? So we ended up basically, it was somewhere between, per apartment, it was around ten to $20,000 extra to make the building net positive. So it's, it's you know, like... It, ten it's to 20,000. Ten, ten to 20, so it was, yeah, it was, it was basically, I think it was about 20 grand extra to mm. make it energy and water net and positive. With a 10-year payback, yeah. that's nothing. Well, yeah. I can so. see how <laughs> in developments like um, deliberative developments where... The residents get together and decide what they want. They could then yeah. decide to make that choice. Yeah. Whereas if it's yeah, if it's a developer building to sell, how do you convince them? Well, and this is the thing for me is that it, it's like I think a lot of uh, people want to point the finger at everyone else, and it's like a lot of people mm. are pointing fingers at developers at the moment. But who is actually educated enough to know what they should be looking for? Do you know what I mean? And yeah. like, what, who's selling apartments and actually trying to teach people? Yeah, to about, ask for something. What they should want. 
You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.